Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. If you're searching for the door that opened westward expansion, find yourself at Fort Laramie National Historic Site in eastern Wyoming. True, it's decidedly a side trip from just about anywhere, as it's about 100 miles north of Cheyenne, the state capital, and maybe 55 miles west of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. From Interstate 25, the nearest major highway, the drive is not quite 30 miles and 40 minutes from Wheatland, Wyoming. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. I recently visited Fort Laramie and toured the site with park guide Clayton Hansen. The history defined across the historic site's grounds and in its remaining restored buildings, and even in the surrounding countryside, is deeper than first glance might indicate. It's not just a military relic. Fort Laramie truly was an iconic milepost in the nation's history. I opened my visit in last week's podcast with stops at the general location of the original Fort William. After a short break, Clayton and I will resume our tour with a stop at the Cavalry Barracks and the Sutler's Store, and a view of where the 1868 treaty talks with Native Americans were held. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Fort Laramie National Historic Site is a rare, overlooked outpost in the national park system. It's not the only 19th century fort in the system, but it is richly steeped in Western history, from the fur trappers and the cavalry to the Oregon Trail and the Pony Express. In this week's episode, part two of Kurt Repencheck's visit to Fort Laramie, Kurt and Fort Laramie Ranger Clayton Hansen continue their tour of the fort. So Clayton, I know a lot of people are probably somewhat familiar at least with the Buffalo Soldiers, um, the, the, the African-Americans and blacks who, who were in the military and uh, had quite a, a commanding uh, um, appearance or a resume that followed them around. Did they have a role here at Fort Laramie? 
Well, not really. Um, the black regulars, the Buffalo soldiers, are a very important part of the story of the army in the West. Um, there are national parks that do tell their story. Um, Fort uh, Davis in Texas, for example, and even Fort Larned in Kansas. But the army as it was after the Civil War, except for a very brief period, um, was segregated. So you wouldn't have found African-American and you know, so-called white units together at the same post. So Fort Laramie, uh, the soldiers were all white, so, but that would have meant include immigrants as well from Europe or from uh, Latin America. Um, Carlos Carvalho, for example, one of the, the, the post-surgeons, uh, was born in Chile. Um, but uh, African-American regiments would have been elsewhere, so, and it would have been the only regiments or the only companies at that post. So Fort D.A. Russell in Cheyenne was one, um, which is now Air Force Base F.E. Warren or F.E. Warren Air Force Base. And Fort Robinson in Nebraska was another. Uh, so when this post was surplused, the Army would have sent a small detachment of men, perhaps a dozen men, simply to watch and make sure nothing was vandalized or stolen before it was auctioned off to the public, uh, to, the, to the locals, before it became the town of Fort Laramie. Uh, so they would have been here only very briefly, if at all. And after, really, the, the Army history has already ended, or we know it already ended. Yeah. Yeah, well, the post trader I mentioned was one of the civilians who lived here. And he would have been in, uh, in a kind of class apart, he and his wife, you know, much closer to the officers, really, in a lot of ways, um, or even beyond them. Um, they were often the wealthiest man here. I know that one of the post traders here in the late 1860s, uh, he cleared $50,000 a year. Wow. Again, multiply by 20 to 30 to try to get today's money. Yeah. Uh, so he was a very, you know, essentially a millionaire because he often had, he had a monopoly. He was the only a merchant allowed to sell, well, the goods that we'll see in the actual store, uh, liquor in two saloons, one for officers, one for enlisted men. Uh, and because of that, you know, captive market, uh, even with the regulations uh, the army imposed to limit the sort of price gouging, uh, you know, he still can make an awful lot of cash. <laughs> and of course, on this side, he, he had the post office as well. Uh, the telegraph office would have been here, so part of that would have been making money from that. All right, let me open up the post trader. And in the summertime, this is typically open. It's just we're not quite staffed yet, so which is why we keep this room closed. And here we are. So this is the uh, the general store of the plains, or the general store of Wyoming territory, as it would have been in the 1870s. So, is there anything you'd like to buy? You know, that nutmeg cream candy sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah, well, about 10 cents a candy, so it's not too bad. But again, multiply by 20 to 30. Yeah. So, a couple bucks for a, uh, a nutmeg cream. You got sarsaparilla. Sarsaparilla, absolutely. Even today, the, the, our association sells sarsaparilla. If you want a taste of the Old West. Yeah. Boy, there, there's everything here. There's games, there's necessities, there's uh, candlestick holders, there's yep. pitchers and teapots. Yep, preserves. Uh, you, know, you're, you know, you have fr you have canned fruit and you have, you know, the, the chicken tenders of the 1860s and 70s, lobster and oysters. You know, they were, they were considered kind of junk food in the era. Sure. You know, even though now kind of delicacies today. <laughs> you know, I understand that once upon a time, lobster was looked down on so much it was used for pig feed. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same, though I do know that, 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 relatively speaking, a can of this lobster here is much cheaper than this can of peaches. 
So, you know, we're looking at about a uh, dollar for this can of peaches and about 25 cents for this can of lobster. Wow. Fresh fruit, you know, hard to come by. Exactly. Even today, you know, at the, uh, it's hard to, uh, to grow a, a, an orchard here in Wyoming. Let's put it that way. So a few places, but, but yeah, this is also, this would have been, the post trader was often also wealthy because he was a licensed uh, trader with Native American peoples. Uh, so he was the only uh, white person supposedly legally allowed to trade with him. Though, of course, many of those, those Métis, those mixed, uh, um, mixed heritage people would have had their own trading posts in the area as well, where they could have, uh, you know, Native American people could have brought buffalo hides, beaver occasionally uh, for store credit. You know, in, in going over the, the history of the fort and, and what transpired here, um, we, we can't overlook the, the treaty talks that were held with the Native Americans going back to 1851 and then uh, 1868, I believe. 18, well, those were the two that were, ended up with treaties that were signed by both the U.S. government and representatives of the Native nations of the Northern Plains. And, uh, but there were more councils than that. There were councils that we know of in 1866 um, and at other times as well in the 1850s. So yeah, and imagine in 1851, that, that smaller post I was talking about in this whole area to the north of the, uh, the fort, when we go back outside, you know, imagine it just filled with representatives of those nations of the Northern Plains. The Shoshone, the, uh, who, who arrived even though they signed another treaty, the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, the Lakota, uh, the Arikara, um, you know, many people traveling essentially from the Canadian border or from the Missouri River Valley coming here. And so I think 10 to 15,000 uh, Native Americans here with all of their livestock and, uh, you know, a huge dusty uh, cloud, but like an amazing, you know, uh, meeting place of peoples, an embassy on the plains. Uh, in fact, but there were so many people here for that council that they actually had to move it. There was insufficient forage for the, uh, <laughs> the livestock. So moved down to Horse Creek, which is right on the border between Nebraska and Wyoming today. You know, and that's, that's one thing that's so amazing about the national park system is that the history, good, bad, and indifferent, that is captured in these places and preserved and interpreted. I mean, that's, that's why I fell in love with the parks is there's so much to soak up in a visit to, whether you're going to Yellowstone or to, to Fort Laramie or you know, anywhere else in the system. It's just such a, a wealth of information. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this, this does preserve that, that whole history. Um, and again, it's, it's a very complex uh, history, especially with the nations in the Northern Plains. You know, the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie you know, did establish uh, with the Lakota, you know, established the Great Sioux Reservation, as it was called in the treaty document, which included essentially now all, all of the western portion of the Dakotas and the land north of the, the North Platte. So, you know, you, when you cross onto US 26, at least under the 1868 treaty, you are in Lakota territory. That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how deep you want me to get to that. <laughs> I mean, you, you go up to the Wind River Reservation and, and the tribes there and, and the the lands that I think that first treaty gave them, and then it was uh, taken away in that second treaty. Yes, no, I mean, and that's, that is part of the story in some ways too. I mean, it continues beyond here. You know, we're the starting point with those councils and those embassies, but you know, there are machinations, there's you know, the, the, the changes, the gold rush to the Black Hills, um, you know, which is an even part of our story. You know, the, the Black Hills stage from Cheyenne runs right through Fort Laramie. And actually, the, the post trader ran a hotel uh, for much of the period, too. So where visitors, or I should say travelers, passing through to the Black Hills would have stopped. So it all connects. That's the sort of wild thing about this place. Yeah, yeah. Well, should we go down to the barracks? Sure, let's do that.
Now we're at the, the enlistment barracks, or the cavalry barracks. Um, actually, let's go down to this end here. It would have been cool to see a time lapse of, of going from Fort John to Fort William to, to present day Fort Laramie and how it expanded across this, this setting. It would, that'd be, a, that'd be an amazing project for a graduate student in GIS who might be interested in doing that. So keep an eye on that, uh, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we'll do it, but it would be some pretty amazing uh, reproduction if we could do that. So now we're at the enlistment barracks, the cavalry barracks, as is often called, and even thinking of time-lapse, um, Army has a relatively limited amount of funds, so they'll often build buildings in phases, even then. So when this building was first built, uh, the porch we're on wasn't here. Uh, they hadn't, had, didn't have enough milled lumber for it. So there's only the, uh, the concrete, the lime grout cement structure on this side. So 18 inches thick um, walls of, of poured cement here, of course, scored to look like they're blocks. You know, a little, a little bit of a uh, decoration. Okay. So, but yeah, let's go in and, and talk about the enlisted men and their lives. So, very, very different than officers. You know, officers' lives would be recognizable to us in a lot of ways. Um, to, you know, a, a typical person in the United States, whether living in an apartment or in a home. You know, you have a kitchen area, you have bedroom that's your own or shared with your partner or maybe with your children, but for enlisted men, uh, everything was in common. Uh, so no privacy whatsoever. You know, many cases is kind of like basic training in the army or a military today, only this was the entire enlistment. You're not gonna get off base housing in 1875. So we're down here in the, uh, in the mess hall and you can see, you know, these benches, these tables, they almost look like picnic tables, don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, set up for the men who would have been here. So a, a company of men, uh, this is company K, so um, Captain Egan's company, and so from 1876 in the 2nd Cavalry. And probably would have been about 50 to 60 men, depending on the health, uh, desertion. There's a lot of uh, that story we can talk about if you're interested. You've got your double wide or triple wide uh, wood stove in the middle. I, I wonder if there was a uh, pecking order for who got to sit closest or furthest away from that. Hey. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've read that there was a little bit of one. <laughs> Let's put it that way. A lot of the senior non-commissioned officers may have been a little bit closer to the stoves in the wintertime. Uh, so, you know, your, your, your sergeants, your first sergeant, your uh, company quartermaster sergeant may have gotten uh, first, uh, first dibs on uh, seats down in the mess hall or even up here, you know, had their bunks uh, closer to the, uh, the stoves on the second level. So up on the second floor. Yep, and we're up on the second floor. You know, welcome to the actual <laughs> uh, bunks themselves. So we'll head in. So how many could they house in this barracks? Well, in theory, a full-strength company would have been 100 men. So probably you could get 100 in here, but most of the time in the post-Civil War Army, you almost never had 100 men in a company. You know, like I said, it was 50 or 60 was much more normal. So, pretty, pretty still, even with 50 or 60 in here, this is a very, very tight space. Yeah. Not even three feet between beds. Absolutely not. You know, and, and straw mattresses, just as, just as in the period when the Army is starting to move to spring mattresses, to 
maybe a little more comfortable uh, accommodations. Because yeah, in many ways, the Army is beginning to realize after the Civil War, you know, the health of, the, of soldiers is really important. Um, so food's getting a little bit better. It's still very bland, still so you can transport over thousands of miles, but a little healthier food, a little more comfort, you know, better mattresses, better beds. Uh, if you traveled to a, a post built in the 1850s or in the 1860s, or at least if we still had surviving barracks from that period, these would have been, you know, double or even tripled bunked. So, you know, up to, you know, two or three men on each level of the bunk. Uh, and then, of course, an, an upper level of the bunk, so to squeeze even more men in. But so, again, you know, single beds, not very big, but I think better than a, better than double bunking. <laughs> true, true. And you've got names up. Are those actual names or are those? Uh... Yeah, no, these are the names of the soldiers who were here in 1876 in this company. I mentioned Company K of the 2nd Cavalry, or sometimes known as Captain Egan's Company. And they would have been uh, the garrison company. Uh, so these are the men. So we have O'Hood, we have Hoolan, we have Carney, Jameson, um, we have uh, Sunley, Fillinger, Cullen. You're probably uh, noticing and hearing a lot of uh, a lot of German, a lot of Irish names. You know, many many of the people who served in this uh, in this company would have been born overseas. Uh, not a majority, but a very significant minority, especially from those two countries. I bet you get a lot of genealogists come through here searching for their family past. Oh, absolutely, or, or writing to us. Uh, so if you're interested in genealogy, you know, the Army keeps pretty good records. Uh, so we often can say, yo, if you know that an ancestor served in the regular Army after the Civil War or even before the Civil War, uh, we can look them up and, uh, and see if they show up in the record somewhere. Though, unfortunately, a lot of that, aside from just enlistment dates, only shows up... <laughs> when they have an encounter with military justice. So I might be able to say that, you know, your great-great-great-grandfather unfortunately was arrested for falling asleep on duty or failing to report or something like that. But it still might answer a question. You know, say, yes, I can confirm that he served in the Army, uh, in the regular Army. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, with uh, wood stove heat uh, in the wintertime, of course, uh, you might have a fire. So I see there's a, a, a barrel over there for water and buckets hanging oh, yeah. over it. Oh, fire watch is very important. Uh, it's, no, it's no name. In the 19th century army, it's uh, you know going to keep uh, keep everyone safe here. Even in a concrete building like this, you know, wood stove, wood floors, uh, you know, wooden slats on the bunks. There's an awful lot that can catch on fire here. Any record of fires in the barracks? Uh, in this barracks, uh, I do not know, but I do know that they were common enough, uh, and there were other fires, grass fires that were fairly common. You know, we are in this sort of dry edge of the high plains here, so. You know, even today, you know, the sage uh, country catches on fire pretty easily. Sure, sure. All right, where to next? Well, that's a, that's, that's a, we can, let's, that's a good question. <laughs> let's swing around to the, uh, the treaty site, I think would be good. Oh, okay. Or at least the view of the treaty site. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is the newest sponsor of the National Parks Traveler. It is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. This month, the credit union is celebrating 86 years in business. It was first started by Department of Interior employees and eventually opened its membership to like-minded groups. 
Its ultimate goal is to be your natural resource for financial services. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit interiorfcu.org to find other ways to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Boy, it's getting warm, and it's only uh, not even 11 o'clock. I know, it feels like we ha we're, we're having a little taste of, uh, of May here in uh, early April. Early April, yeah. Though, winter may be coming back. I think uh, we may have already caught a little recording of that. There's a good chance of definitely cold rain, if not snow, uh, tonight and tomorrow. So, you know, again, that's one of, the, one of the things that must have been shocking to a lot of those enlisted men coming from places like ireland and germany or even the eastern seaboard you know uh, cities like new york and philadelphia or even or even midwestern uh, farm farmers from indiana you arrive out here on the northern plains and there's sort of nothing in the way uh from these big air masses and sudden changes in temperature and thunderstorms and it must have been very shocking i can i can see one of the reasons why uh, the desertion rate was so high in the regular army after the civil after the civil war you know, 10 to 10% or more a year wow. was pretty common. Now, I know from my years living in Wyoming that uh, the saying is that winter's here and winter's coming. Yes, and that's and that's true. Uh, though it sometimes feels like winter's here and winter's coming, and the same thing could be said about summer, too. Yeah. Um, so we're passing through on the way to the, uh, the tree grounds. This is where we do do uh, some of our historic weapons demonstrations. So we don't have the... Uh, howitzer out yet, or of course the small arms are being being serviced right now, getting ready for the season. Uh, well, we will fire an 1841 howitzer uh, on on weekends uh, this summer, like as we've done for many many decades, and demonstrate and talk a little about the you know the the process of doing so safely. Though one of the funny stories about that is very rarely used in combat here on the plains, uh, mostly signal guns, uh, but a very dangerous signal gun. And if you come out, you can learn a little bit more. So. And where, we're, and where we're passing along now would have been uh, the quartermaster and commissary area. The commissary is where it's one of the standing historic buildings is where we have our visitor center. Uh, so it is a historic building uh, 
for all that entails. So poured concrete, it looks much like the other buildings here. And there would have been a line of shops along here, blacksmith shop, um, a carpenter, and of course uh, the bakeries here to, to feed the post. Part of the, the ration was uh, you had basically a loaf of bread a day if you were an enlisted soldier, or perhaps that was turned into hardtack and the equivalent amount of flour. And so that would have been baked here in these two buildings, one of which is in ruins, unfortunately, the other is preserved pretty well. So do you ever get any um, events where some of these buildings are brought to life and you, you bring in the bakers to, you know, bake the bread and break, bake the hardtack and give it to the visitors? Well, it, it, that, was, uh, that was something that was common uh, when it was safe to do so. Unfortunately, you know, with, uh, with ovens even today, um, you know, they only last so long before you get, begin to get cracks in them. So even though the building still stands, the oven is unfortunately no longer usable. Okay. Uh, but we do have events where we do bring in many folks who, who will be in living history clothing. You know, the Western Encounters, for example, in August is one of our, one of our bigger events. We had one last year focused on women's history in the West, and we're still working on the theme for this year's uh, Western Encounters event. And when will that be? It should be in early August. Early August. Look, look on our website for the announcement. Of course, a little bit more about the, about the pioneer history. The part of the story, of course, is that the Mormon Pioneer Trail passes through here and is used uh, essentially parallel, literally parallel sometimes, uh, on the opposite side of the river from the Oregon and California trails. So, you know, uh, Latter-day Saints leaving the Midwest or coming from Europe traveling across the continent to what's now Salt Lake City and, uh, and over the Wasatch Mountains, and many of them with hand carts rather than wagons. So uh, imagine, you know, taking everything you own in a wheelbarrow for 1,400 miles. Some great history there, going all the way across Wyoming. Exactly. So here we are back at the Laramie River. Yes, so we kind of, not quite full circle. There's still a little bit more to do before we do that. But if we look across in the open area on the far side of the Laramie River here, is the site of the 1868 Treaty Council uh, with the nations of the Northern Great Plains, especially the Lakota uh, people. So this was part of the Indian Peace Commissioner, uh, Commissions in 1868, which uh, signed several other treaties. Um, the Fort Bridger Treaty in uh, Western Wyoming, uh, the Shoshone of what's now the Wind River Reservation, the Eastern Shoshone. Uh, the Medicine Lodge Treaty signed in uh, with the peoples of the southern, southern Great Plains, and the Treaty of uh, Bosque Redondo signed in New Mexico. Not familiar so, with that one. Yeah, that's it's a little more complicated history there. Um, that's preserved by New Mexico State Parks. They talk about it. It's with the, the Navajo and with the Apache. Well, welcome to the Embassy on the Northern Plains. So we've lined it up pretty well. There are historic photographs. So you can see the outline of the hills here on the historic photograph. And if you look across the river, there's that same line of hills. Yeah. So we know this is where uh, the councils were held in 1868 with representatives of the Oglala and uh, many of the other council fires of the Lakota Nation. And I believe uh, if, if readers or listeners go to your website, they can find some of those historic photos on it and kind of prepare for their visit to Fort Laramie. Absolutely, and we, and we have additional uh, photographs of that council as well on display in uh, the visitor center in our theater, which um, right now is unfortunately closed, but we are hoping to reopen that soon, along with photographs uh, of, you know, not only the peace commissioners, but many of the leaders of these uh, peoples of the Northern Great Plains. So how long did these councils last? I mean, how many days were they encamped over there? 
Well, it really depended. Something like the 1851 uh, treaty was a large, you know, multi-week council where they brought together many leaders all at once. While the 1868 treaty um, essentially stretched over the whole year uh, in many ways. So you had people arriving in the spring, all through the summer, even into the fall, uh, representing, you know, different uh, bands or different divisions of the, of the Lakota, uh, signing at different times. People like Red Cloud, of course, Spotted Tail, and many others. That must have been quite a, a time. Did you ever find yourself uh, wishing you could time travel back to, to experience Fort Laramie back in those days? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we have a living history program as well, to help, you know, visitors uh, time travel a little bit. Maybe, you know, with occasional large events, as I mentioned, but even during a regular weekend, you'll find one of the staff members uh, dressed as someone would have been in the past, perhaps as a fur trader or a common enlisted soldier or a, uh, a laundress or officer's wife or, or traveler uh, just simply passing through who, uh, you know, again, this help you step back and imagine this place as it was. But I wish in some ways we could see the buildings rise or at least imagine them, you know. This is maybe not the Park Service's job to rebuild all these buildings, but it is part of, you know, imagining that barracks there and that barracks staying again and the, the line of buildings along the quartermaster's shop full and teepees across uh, the river, the council site. And we even do raise a few teepees as part of, you know, trying to create that image of what it would have been here in, in the past. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you come up to 1890 and yeah. all of a sudden the army said, well, time to leave. Yeah, I mean, this in many ways, this was sort of bypassed um, by the, the changes in the West that happened over the, the 40-some years of, of the fort. You know, the fort was the source of that change in a lot of ways, and also found itself made, well, surplus as a result of that. You know, the, the rail line to the south, you know, created Cheyenne, Fort D.A. Russell, now Air Force Base, F.E. Warren. It could still be there. Fort Robinson in Nebraska, a Nebraska State Park, uh, these days would still be in service for another 50 years, or even more than 50 years, um, because they were close to the reservations uh, that had been established by these treaties and then by, you know, the results of the 1876 and 77 conflicts with the Lakota. But here, you know, no railroad, only a telegraph line that in many ways was transferred to the south. Um, the Army no longer needed a place like Fort Laramie in its mission. So this became was surplused and sold to the general public and became in many ways a town of Fort Laramie for many decades until, of course, a railroad finally was built through the North Platte. Right, right. Probably shouldn't be standing on this end, huh? Oh yeah, no, you wouldn't want to. This is the uh, <laughs> this is the sink. So yeah, the the, the sewer system for uh, for part of the uh, part of the, the the barracks and the uh, the guardhouse here. So if you'd been here in 1870, it might have been a little smelly. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the fort kind of did, did it sit vacant until the Park Service acquired it in 1938 or? No, um, as I said, it was actually in many ways became a town, a very small town, um, like many small towns across Wyoming today. You know, this was the town of Fort Laramie. There was, uh, you know, the post trader store was a general store. The commissary building was a hardware store. The barracks was converted into a uh, saloon and a uh, hotel. Um, people lived in some of the homes here, which is one of the reasons why they're still standing. Again, in 1910, <laughs> when the Burlington Railroad built 
a line uh, through the North Clad Valley, uh, well, the, like in many uh, communities in the West, they moved to be on the railroad. So just a bit north, about two miles. So when you pass through the modern town of Fort Laramie, you know, that in many ways, it's uh, some of those people and their ancestors may have lived here. Wow. Interesting history. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, Clayton, thank you so much for this tour. Um, it really is a wonderful site. I mean, people might think it's a, a, a windshield stop to come in and spend 10 minutes and get your park passport stamped at the visitor center. But there's really a lot to absorb here and, and appreciate and try and envision what transpired a century ago. Absolutely. And more than a century ago, we're, we're almost 185 years we'll be pushing uh, since the, the first fur trading post was established here. Amazing times. It is. And thank you for, for stopping in. And of course, visitors are always welcome. We do have an opportunity to go on a tour. If, you know, we have them scheduled throughout the day in the summertime. Look for our website for those times, along with talks from people talking about immigrant life, about hunting and trapping on the Great Plains, life of soldiers, life of officers, and, and other history topics. So welcome to Fort Laramie, and we hope to see you here. Fewer than two dozen structures remain from a setting that in the mid to late 19th century appeared as a bustling town, with perhaps 1,000 permanent residents bolstered by thousands of emigrants seeking a brief reprieve from the hardships of their journeys west on the Oregon and California trails. Brigham Young and his Mormon followers pulling their handcarts stopped here in 1847, and upwards of 30,000 would-be prospectors on their way to California in 1849 passed through as well. In 1850, and again in 1852, it's been estimated that 50,000 migrants passed Fort Laramie en route to Oregon and California. Even though Fort Laramie was the only outpost along the 750 miles between Fort Kearney in Nebraska Territory and Salt Lake City in the Utah Territory, the numbers that stopped at the fort are boggling. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this visit to Fort Laramie. Next week, Lynn Riddick will be exploring the role and projects of the National Park Service's Submerged Resources Center. For more than 35 years, this arm of the Park Service has been a nationally and internationally recognized leader in operational and scientific diving. It also works in locating, documenting, interpreting, and preserving underwater resources, primarily cultural resources. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.